Hello, and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heap, speaking to you from ooh, a kind of gray and overcast Austin, Texas today. I'm here with Ryan Hemmer. Morning, Ryan. Good morning, John. It's, uh, uh, it's finally a, above zero here in Minneapolis. It is <laughs> a whopping 16 degrees, which makes it 46 degrees warmer than it was on Wednesday. <laughs> How are everyone's sinuses? Uh, dry, real, real dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's fun. We're, yeah, you probably won't hear this for a, a few weeks, but uh, we are recording at the tail end of Polar Vortex 19. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So it's just Ryan and I again today, and we're going to do some wrap up on the essay we were looking at in the last episode, Mission and Spirit. We got through the the opening sections where Lonergan was laying out his, uh, uh, maybe we could call it an alternative um, account of an evolutionary or emergentist cosmology in some contrast or at least some comparison to Rahner. And uh, we're going to pivot to the last two sections. So if you want to go grab your copy, it's sections four and five. Um, the, the section on the subject and then the, the section on the missions. Uh, just a little business at the top here. Uh, as, as I've mentioned the last few weeks, we have a Patreon now, which is a, a means to, on an ongoing basis, provide some small financial support to the podcast. We're, I would say we're about uh, a third, maybe halfway of the way to covering our monthly overhead on the show. And if you have it in your means, and in your inclination to support us on an ongoing basis for as little as a dollar each month, it would help us cover those monthly costs so that we don't have to bear them. And it would make the show more sustainable for us as a team here. Um, so, you know, we have to host the audio and we use a kind of fancy um, video conferencing software to do it just for stability purposes so that the audio is uh, not and Skyped as sometimes Skype audio can be. So anyway, if you want to if you want to take a look at that, whether you're game to jump on as a patron or not, it's Patreon.com/systematically. Again, that's Patreon.com/systematically. Uh, and just to rattle them off, as always, if you want to send us uh, an email, you can get us systematicallypodcast@gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at systematicpod on Twitter. Um, so far, you know we're a few weeks in now, and I haven't. I haven't gotten any treasures old and new from our listeners. So if you've been holding off because you think, oh, you know, I'm sure they get lots of submissions and mine won't get picked. Uh, the, the, the bucket is empty. So if you, if you want very good odds right now on having your treasures old and new right on the show, now's the time. So send us a couple of books, an old one and a new one. Uh, you don't have to send us the physical books. You can just, you know, list the books, who they're by and what their name is and a little blurb about what they're about and why you think people should check them out. Uh, we'll probably read them on the show because it's slim pickings right now. Okay. Any other business, Ryan, I'm not thinking of? Uh, nothing so pressing as uh, what caused us to remember it. So, Okay. Well, I'll take that as my canon of relevance then. Uh, <laughs> next week, we're going to have a guest. So we're going we're gonna to hit pause on the Reading the Lonergan essays, and we're going to have a guest in here. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you wait and see who it is. It'll be a surprise. Uh, but we're looking forward to that. Uh, hopefully, Robin and Brian will be able to join us. But, you know, life is complicated. 
people are trying to finish dissertations and plan conferences and stuff. So um, we'll see what happens. Now, let's turn to our essay. So again, this is Mission and Spirit. It's in a third collection. Last time, like I said, we looked at his consideration of finality. So finality here, remember, isn't just, isn't just telos. It isn't just end, but it's, be, it's, it's being ordered to an end. It's a relation to an end. So he considers absolute finality, and absolute finality is the ordering of the relation of all things to God. Horizontal finality is the proportionate end of particular things, right? What a thing is, what falls from it, what it may uh, do and enact. And then vertical finality, he says, is to an end higher than the proportionate end. Uh, and vertical finality is a finality that presupposes a hierarchy, a hierarchy of entities and ends. Um, such that we were talking before, right, about the, the various cells that are in an oak tree have a vertical finality to the growth and development of the oak tree, right? So it's not, it's not the acorn to the oak tree, which is a horizontal finality, but it's rather the vertical finality of something at a, a sort of lower level of causality, a lower level of uh, entitative being, having an end beyond its own proportionate end into uh, a higher uh, higher purpose. Um, maybe one way to think about this in, in more medieval metaphysical terms is that uh, the cosmos is a whole and it has parts, but each of those parts are themselves also wholes. And uh, those parts themselves can also be, relatively speaking, wholes. And so the, the, the lower parts are ordered to the finality of being a complete whole, but those lower wholes are themselves ordered as parts to the completion, the finality of, of the higher holes. Um, and this is why you can have these kind of medieval hierarchical accounts of reality. Lonergan's taking that, and as he moves into the discussion in section two of prob uh, probability and providence, he's positioning that kind of medieval metaphysical analysis of hierarchy into an emergentist one, uh, an, an evolutionary view of the universe, he calls it, uh, where you don't have one static hierarchy um, you know, you don't have crystal spheres geared to God's crankshaft, as one of the characters in Stoppard's Arcadia says, um, but rather you have the unfolding, the emergence of um, holes that are set into schemes that are probabilistically governed that may or may not issue in some higher hole for which it would be a part or an element or a contributing factor or what have you. Um, and so then he gives, in light of that, some account of what supernatural might mean in that scheme. Um, and there's a sense in which any vertical finality is relatively supernatural to the horizontal finality that's uh, ordered upward to it. But here, what we're concerned with, he says, is the absolutely supernatural, right? It's humanity's vertical finality to God. Uh, and so he gives an account of that. And then he pivots to what we're talking about today, section four, the human subject. Now, if you have the good fortune to bump into a Lonarganian around, you know, in the English-speaking theology world, you have probably heard a paper in which someone rattles off the levels of, of consciousness, right? Experiencing, understanding, judging, deciding, 
And then uh, you get the transcendental precepts, which we invoke here and there, right? That correspond to these levels, be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible, and so forth. And, you know, if you've heard this paragraph in a paper given at a conference once, you've heard it a thousand times. One of the things that's helpful and interesting in this essay is that Lonergan gives you the normative exigence that gives that accounts for the emergence of this cognitional structure, these levels of cognitional structure, um, and also that which moves and pivots between them, such that he's able to he's able to show you that you have uh, at the at the root of each uh, set of conscious operations that constitutes one of the levels, either the level of, of intelligence or of rationality or what have you, um, is an operator, is something driving it. And the, the operator is a priori, right? Because it's, it's the thing that's generating the way of being conscious. Um, but everything else, the content um, at each of the levels, the content of the acts and the acts themselves, those are all a posteriori. Um, so there is an a priori element in here, but it's um, it's not a priori in a Kantian sense of being an a priori sort of uh, rational contents. It's rather uh, a priori in the sense of being a a dynamism to cognitional acts and to cognitional contents. Um, anything you want to add to that piece, Brian? Oh, well, I, I mean, I think it. I think it is sort of. Uh, worth expressing in in the kind of normal uh, course of operation, like what those operators are. Oh, sure. Um, so, I mean, when, when you're talking about the kind of ordinary, everyday, commonplace operations that emerge from um, these these dynamisms in consciousness, the main or the, I should say at least the principal way in which um, that dynamism is expressed and, and objectified is as a question. Um, and so uh, these acts or these operations that sort of occur within a particular pattern of self-presence um, are responses to the operator that expresses itself as a question, right? And so when, when Lonergan will talk about um, you know, understanding, uh, when he'll talk about um, weighing evidence, when he's talking about evaluation, um, all of those acts are responses to operators uh, that are the dynamism of consciousness expressed as specific questions. Uh, so the attending to data, uh, the drive to understanding, um, the move to uh, assent and judgment, um, and the adoption of an existential viewpoint and, and selection of a course of action, um, the deliberation of values, all of those have as their principal driver, their principal operator, their principal uh, expression of the dynamism of the human spirit, um, distinct kinds of questions. And because there's distinctions between the questions, there are distinctions between the kinds of acts. Right? And so what Lonergan will sometimes call a question for understanding uh, will yield uh, kinds uh, sort of species of acts that are going to answer those questions. 
and questions for uh, evaluation, questions for judgment, all the different sort of categories of questions that he outlines, they all have corresponding operations, but those operations are responses to the dynamism of the human spirit as expressed in, a dis- in distinct questions that are themselves sort of set within a self-assembling hierarchy. Um, and so when we're talking about um, the, the human person or the human self operating under his or her own power um, in, in engagement with his or her world, when Lonergan's talking about operators, and uh, they are the questions that lead to the operations in a particular mode of self-presence or a particular mode of consciousness. And you can, I think you can add to that too, that, um, that they function as rather than, so, you know, with, with Kant, you have this idea that experience is by the understanding fit under laws, um, or rules or something like that. Uh, and that the, the understanding just like is the, the, the collection of rules and laws that are the categories. Um, and Lonergan's account is, is rather different insofar as the operators are that which generates law. Um, they're, they're, the, the questions have a, a structure to them, right? Which is why you can have the transcendental precepts and there can be a kind of ought to the transcendental precepts, right? Um, but it's autonomous. Um, and it's not autonomous just in the sense of that the understanding is this kind of bucket of rational categories that in and of themselves need to be applied, but it's rather that um, it's the, the understanding, uh, the understanding, the, the, the sort of uh, operators rather are themselves dynamic drives to generate in, intelligible orders. Um, now, what does that mean? Well, at the level of attention, it's that your, your experience isn't just blooming, buzzing confusion, but it's a kind of patterned flow. You attend to some things and not to others. I always talk, you know, when I'm teaching, I always talk about the hum of the HVAC system, right? I'm always, I'm always in these buildings with this background hum of the HVAC system. And I say, you were hearing that for the last 30 minutes of this class, but you, you only listened to it just now because I directed your attention to it. And so there's something that's in the background selecting, ordering, patterning. Um, so too with intelligence then, right? That there's, you're asking some questions and thus implicitly not asking others. And you ask those questions according to, uh, whatever the sort of selective sorga, you know, whatever the concern, uh, is of your intellectual consciousness and so on down the line, right? What evidence is relevant to, to the affirmation of your bright ideas and which evidence is just not evidence at all. It's not relevant. Um, and so too with deliberation, right? What, what, what stuff do I need to know and figure out and keep in mind when I make practical decisions and what just doesn't matter? Uh, <clears throat> also, another thing I think we can say about that is that you can consider it theologically too, which is that part of what Lonergan does by considering the sort of quote-unquote levels of consciousness in terms of operators, in terms of distinct dynamisms, is he's concretizing and breaking down the various ways in which our hearts are restless until they rest in God, right? That, that the, the term of all these operators as sort of notions is ends, is being itself, 
Um, and there are different ways in which it's being ordered to being itself. But I think you can, you can quite reasonably consider this in terms of, th- this is a kind of structure of differentiations of the ways in which our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Um, that, that ultimately the, the absolute finality of all of our consciousness is to God in all of these different levels or modes or according to these different operators or you know, whichever way of hashing it out you want to you wanna take. Um, anything else on, on that piece before we pivot to this? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, that restlessness, you know, you could, you could imagine that restlessness expressed as a kind of like, uh, almost in existentialist terms, right, as a kind of, as a kind of angst. Um, but Lonergan's really considering it um, more in, in terms of what, uh, in, in maybe in medieval philosophy, we might call uh, the light of age and intellect. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's um, the the dynamism of inquiry itself. Right. That that uh, what what moves you to not just ask a question, but to ask a series of questions in which the questions and answers all relate to one another within a single dynamic whole. The restlessness is the drive, the dynamism that uh, all of those experiences. That, that establishes the linkages for all those expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why, that's how it can be both autonomous and self-assembling um, because each one of us has this restlessness, has this drive, has this dynamism that, that either may or may not come to expression in the, the course of our inquiry into the, the patterns of experience of our lives. Right. Um, so, so one of the things that Lonergan does here is he, he takes this account of the cognitional and the practical subject, and he links it back to his metaphysics of emergence, that he's going to say that um, our attentiveness has a horizontal finality, and our intelligence has a horizontal finality, and our rationality, our reasonableness has a horizontal finality, and our uh, practical consciousness uh, has a horizontal finality, right? To, to, um, sort of taking in what's relevant to be seen and heard and touched and smelled to understanding what we've experienced to, um, knowing rationally and to making choices responsibly. But what we notice when I rattle those off is that there's a, there's a borrowed content in each of the levels from the lower levels. And when you have that kind of borrowed content, at a higher level from a lower level, you have vertic- vertical finality at work. That uh, the lower is setting conditions for the higher, but that the higher emerges autonomously, right? I can um, pay close attention and not be inquisitive at all. Um, in some ways, this is sort of what like uh, mindfulness practices are, right? Quit trying to think about and figure out your experience, but just pay attention to it. Right? And if questions come up, pay attention to those too, but let them go. Um, however, you're invited by attentiveness to the kind of leap to what's going on here? What's this all about? So too, then when you have a bright idea about what's going on, you're invited to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but is it true? Right? Is this really what's going on? Is this, is this in fact what is the case? 
I come up with bright ideas all the time. Some of them are some of them turn out to be fanciful uh, sort of language gone on holiday kind of stuff. And some of them turn out to be uh, meanings that mediate reality to me. Uh, which one is this? And then, you know, so on up the line. So I'm going to read a little bit. So if, if you have your copy or if you want to look at it later, or you looked at it earlier, um, this is on page 29 of a third collection. I think, I think it's in that, uh, in, in the same version I have, I should probably open the collected works version and look, but you know what? This is a podcast, so I'm not going to bother. I don't get paid enough. In any case, the, the paragraph begins, such vertical finality. Such vertical finality is another name for self-transcendence. By experience, we tend to the other. By understanding, we gradually construct our world. By judgment, we discern its independence of ourselves, right? It's a, that it's objectiveness. By deliberate and responsible freedom, we move beyond mere self-regarding norms, right? What do I want to do? and make ourselves moral beings. What ought I to do? Next paragraph. The disinterestedness of morality, right? Not that it's not about what self-regarding norms, right? It's not what do I want to do, but it's about what ought I to do, is fully compatible with the passionateness of being. There's a fun sort of uh, William Desmond style turn of phrase. So the disinterestedness of, moral of morality is fully compatible with the passionateness of being. For that passionateness has a dimension of its own. It underpins and accompanies and reaches beyond the subject as experientially, intelligently, rationally, morally conscious. All right, I'm going to pause for a second. So part of what we're going to get here is a consideration that the subject is not just this operator-driven agent of intentional acts, but that the subject is a whole being, an embodied being, um, a, uh, and that, that wholeness, that embodiedness has a set of consequences for the quality and the um, unfolding and the full reality of these intentional acts. So I'll keep going here then. The underpinning of this passionateness is the quasi operator that presides over the transition from the neural to the psychic. It ushers into consciousness, not only the demands of unconscious vitality and also the exigences of vertical finality. And here's a sentence only Lonergan could write. It obtrudes deficiency needs. Uh, confession. I don't, I don't know what that sentence means. If you do know, tweet at us in the self-actualizing subject. It shapes the images that release insight. It recalls evidence that is being overlooked. It may embarrass wakefulness as it disturbs sleep with the specter, the shock, the shame of misdeeds. As it channels into consciousness the feedback of our aberrations and our unfulfilled strivings, so for the Jungians, it manifests its archetypes through symbols that preside over the genesis of the ego and to guide the individuation process from the ego to the self. But as it underpins, so too it accompanies the subject's conscious and intentional operations. There, it is the mass and momentum of our lives, the color and tone and power of feeling that fleshes and gives substance to what otherwise would be no more than a Shakespearean, quote, pale cast of thought. As it underpins and accompanies, so too it overarches conscious intentionality. 
There it is the topmost quasi-operator that by inner subjectivity prepares, by solidarity entices, by falling in love, establishes us as members of community. Within each individual, vertical finality heads for self-transcendence. In an aggregate of self-transcending individuals, there is the significant coincidental manifold in which can emerge a new creation. Possibility yields to fact, and fact bears witness to its originality and power in the fidelity that makes families, in the loyalty that makes peoples, in the faith that makes religions. But here, we meet the ambiguity of man's vertical finality. It is natural to man to love with the domestic love that unites parents with each other and with their children, with the civil love that can face death for the sake of one's fellow men, and with the all-embracing love that loves God above all. But in fact, man lives under the reign of sin and his redemption lies not in what is possible to nature, but, what, but in what is affected by the grace of Christ. So in a second, we're going to turn to section five and talk about what he means by what is affected by the grace of Christ. But I just want to note here that here we have Lonergan integrating an account of the sort of force of embodied affectivity, right? That there's an embodied affectivity that is also involved with the patterning of our experience, that can interrupt our sleep with dreams, that can um, govern which things we pay attention to and which ideas have. force for us. It can also uh, contribute to our deliberation, to our rational reflection. It, 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 as he says, right, it enfleshes uh, all of this. And also then, the thing he's really concerned with too at the end here is that it can function to tie us together into communities. And so then the being tied together in communities, whether it's families or civic uh, bodies or even religions, that too is a a framing and an influence upon um, the way in which we live. And so then at the end here, right, he considers this highest, quote-unquote, natural vertical finality uh, of being in these communities bound together by these various kinds of love. But he notes there's a joker in the deck, which is that we live under the reign of sin and that uh, being uh, in love with one another, either as families or in civic uh, communities or uh, even in sort of what uh, you might be able to construct uh, hypothetically as a kind of uh, natural religion or something like that, that the reign of sin that the failure to meet all of these uh, exigencies to be attentive, intelligent, reasonable, and responsible uh, are always at work. And so then our redemption from that doesn't lie in our nature, but in, as he says, what is affected by the grace of Christ. Um, but let me, just, let me just finally point out, right? So you have two elements at work here. You have both the self-transcendence of the structured, intentional operations of consciousness driven by operators and gathered into these kind of operational levels that he, he gives in his account of the subject. But at the same time, that all is literally embodied. It's enmeshed with, it's shot through with the sort of quasi-operator of, an, of uh, feeling and affectivity and intersubjectivity and ultimately interpersonal love and 
um, community fellow feeling and all this kind of stuff. So both of those elements are at work in human beings considered concretely in this way uh, as themselves internally organized by vertical finality, right? Both the self-transcendence of cognition and practical consciousness, but also the self-transcendence of our embodied affectivity. Both of those are at work at once, and they're both important for what is acted upon by the grace of Christ. Okay. So unless Ryan has anything he wants to add to that, I'm going to throw it to him to turn to section five. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the other thing to, to bear in mind is the, within this kind of analogy of hierarchies that he's been talking about with the operators and, and indeed that his whole account of finality is, is conceived under, um, these affective, intersubjective, interpersonal, you can stack all those up as synonyms, but, but in fact, there's a distinction between them. Yeah. And within the analogy of the levels, it's a, it's a distinction of place, right? That the, the vertical finality that, um, that comes to expression in the operators that drive the, the, the so-called the levels of consciousness they uh, have their base in the, um, the, the transition, as Lonergan calls, from the neural to the psychic and the quasi-operator that uh, sort of governs that transition, that expresses itself in affectivity, the passionateness of being, all those terms. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of root to... Uh, the autonomous process, the spiritual process of of conscious intentionality that that has that is itself the expression of this prior uh, what he'll sometimes call intersubjectivity, uh, this prior base in um, the kind of pre thematic unity of human living, uh, and so you don't just have the the sort of subject as monad that um, happens to be always already operating in this particular way uh, in the world, but uh, the human subject as itself emerging through a process of vertical finality from a prior, uh, more elemental kind of intersubjectivity. So you, you get a count of, of a vertical finality um, where the subject is a consequence and not the most basic unit, right? Yeah, no, and that's... But then, no, no, go ahead. But then you have um, a similar kind of what he'll here call a quasi-operator, sort of on the, the, the highest level of the hierarchy, right? Where the consideration of moral value, of moral worth, of existential self-constitution, the kind of selection of oneself as a moral agent, this is not, in Lonergan's terms, the, the final fulfillment of the vertical finality of self-transcendence. But indeed, uh, there is a, an interpersonal element. Uh, there is um, a, the, the full expression of self-transcendence, the full sort of assemblage of the vertical finality that is the subject in these different forms of being in love. Where being in love is not the unconscious or pre-conscious process of, of sort of elemental connectivity among among subjects but is this fully awake fully alive fully known process by which um persons 
not just subjects, but persons are related to one another in fully embodied, fully expressed, fully known ways. And so um, there's a base to the dynamism of the subject in the kind of um, pre-thematic intersubjective community. But that process of self-transcendence finds its fulfillment also in uh, the interpersonal, um, fully known love of community and communion. And so by specifying the different kinds of communions there as he does, right, the family, uh, sort of the, the, the world, and, and ultimately of God, um, he's giving you the kind of uh, full uh, dynamic view of what you mean when you talk about a human person. Um, but then, as you, as you rightly point out, this is the, this is the consideration of human being um, as human being and not under the conditions of, of sin. And so then the, the uh, move to talk about redemption, as we'll, as we'll do now, um, is, a, is a response to that reality. Yeah, and I might, you know, I might tack on to that, too, that it's important to remember that this is, um, well, two things. This is an analysis of what in the concrete is given altogether. And so um, as you don't see uh, the various cells that constitute an oak tree, like shimmying along the ground and coalescing into oak trees, um, so, so too, it's not as though these various elements are, um, are not in each in themselves a mode of self-transcendence. Um, right, that you only self-transcend per se when you fall in love, but rather that when you're paying attention, you're already self-transcending, right? This isn't a matter of getting outside of the, being inside my head, right? It's, it, this is not a uh, in here, out there, mind, body, Cartesian problem that we're solving with this. Um, and, and, and acknowledging the quasi-operator, the sort of, the sort of, the sort of, accompanying undergirding mode of self-transcendence that is the emergence of affectivity and of inter- from within inner subjectivity and all this kind of stuff that there's already a uh w- with the passionateness of being i'll use another desmond line there's also a porosity of the being of the subject all, all the way through here um and so the two then i can tack on to that you know in within all the technical terms we've been using it could probably be overlooked that really what lonergan's talking about here is that to be a subject, to be a self, is to be in the process uh, through development, both the way we think of it in terms of like development of children into adolescence, into adulthood, but also just kind of generally. It's, it's, a taking, uh, it, it's a taking in hand. It's an appropriation of yourself. Uh, it's a taking responsibility and taking cognizance of yourself. Um, but that is itself ordered to the fully cognizant, fully responsible giving, of, giving away of oneself, subordination of oneself to others, right? So the, the pivot through that kind of very cognitive structured process um, from inner subjectivity in the sense of a kind of affective interweaving to fully cognizant, fully responsible interpersonal love um, is both is sort of on both ends and a taking in hand of oneself, a, a taking responsibility for oneself, but that's ordered to um, 
canonic self-donation, right? That, that the whole point of all this stuff, the culmination of all these forms of self-transcendence is the self-transcendence that makes my life not fundamentally about me, but gives my life away for the well-being of other persons. Um, and I think that can be missed in all the technical terms and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, it, and maybe if you have an overly Cartesian notion of what self-transcendence has to mean, um, that, that this is about a kind of, uh, there is a kind of, uh, weird inverse exitus reditus kind of thing going on where you take yourself in hand, but ultimately you do that so that you can um, freely and, and fully donate yourself back to the other, which is something I feel compelled to say because I hope it's what Brian would have said if he had been here. And, and we miss you, Brian, if you're listening. Okay, so that was a lot of anthropology. Let's do a little theology. <laughs> so um as as we're we've been talking about so if you're considering um the kind of data on all of these operations these operators the way they assemble with one another um and and um the kind of uh concrete flow of of a life um you can you can consider that uh, sort of purely under the aspect of, as John just said, of an anthropology or of a philosophy. Um, but to do that would not exhaust the questions that you can ask of those data. And um, as, as Lonergan reminds us here, right, there, there's not a place in which one finds this um, development or this process or this uh, evolution of the self through vertical finality as happening sort of um, under its own power and succeeding under its own merits. That uh, for, for all the progress that we might make um, when we commit ourselves to different modes of self-transcendence, um, we find in our own experience of those efforts um, frustrations of numerous kinds. As, uh, wow. as our, our friend Ann Carpenter said on Twitter last night, and I retweeted, the question of where the natural development of human beings can and will lead can be asked, but not answered. And that's a quote from Hansers von Balthasar that she put up. Right. So, um, so, so the experience of, the, of frustration and futility and failure um, and of, you know, disintegration and decline is just as empirical, just as sort of given an experience as um, any, any successful execution of uh, an act of inquiry, uh, of a successful insight, of a true judgment, etc. Um, the wheat and the tares of our own successes and failures are always growing up together in the kind of concrete process of being alive. And so it would be an incomplete evaluation if one simply conceived of what is possible to human self-transcendence uh, merely under the aspect of possibility and never actually got around to dealing with human living as it in fact occurs. And the way it in fact occurs is as this mixture of progress and decline of um, sort of honor and shame, of virtue and vice. And so uh, a, a full analysis 
is going to have to consider the place of futility and failure within this process. And to do that, um, Lonergan is going to turn not to philosophy, but to theology, and is going to consider uh, self-transcendence and consider vertical finality in terms of redemption. Um, if you go back and read Insight, the, the sort of, you know, chapters six and seven, I think in particular, uh, the account of common sense, you come to see how pernicious the role of bias is in Lonergan's account of, of the subject. That um, the, the, the way that, that the sort of normative process of self-transcendence goes off the rails happens kind of easily. And once it does, it can corrupt things um, seemingly in their entirety. Uh, and that the kind of um, the dynamism that we've been talking about that expresses itself in the operators, that dynamism can become the fuel for uh, self-destruction and civilizational entropy. Uh, and so decline, sin, alienation, bias, all of these, these sort of synonyms that we might use, um, they're not actually very easily or even at all overcome simply by recommitting oneself to a normative structure. Um, it's not as if we just wake up one day and say, well, instead of being bad, I'm going to be good. Uh, instead of being inattentive and unintelligent and unreasonable and irresponsible, um, today and henceforth for eternity, I will simply be uh, attentive, intelligent, reasonable, and responsible. In the course of a day, uh, you, you find yourself given to moments of genuine authenticity, and at least for me most days, many more moments of uh, objective inauthenticity. So the, the theological question then is not just what is human nature qua nature, what is the human subject qua subject, um, but what would it mean for this inauthentic subject to once again be authentic? What would it mean for um, the, the person struggling under the conditions of bias and alienation? Uh, what would it mean for them to be made whole, uh, to be uh, integrated into a life of genuine community and communion? Um, but the theological question, of course, isn't just about that. It's not just about the kind of sanans of um, repairing what has gone wrong in the human subject, but it's also about an elevans. It's also about what it would mean to be whole, to be, um, to be a self, and to be integrally and communally related, not just to one another, but to God. So what would it mean to love God and to be in love with God, with God's own love? And so the, the theological question, the question that Lonergan's going to answer here in terms of the missions of the Son and the Spirit is ultimately a theological consideration of those two questions. 
uh, how can what has gone wrong in human living be repaired, but also how can that living be uh, elevated and uh, beyond the proportion of human nature qua nature. This is a very traditional uh, Thomist question, and in fact, a very traditional Thomist answer. Um, but it's set within this broader, more modern context of the sort of consideration of the of the universe under the category of emergence. Uh, and so there's going to be a deployment here of a very traditional kind of Trinitarian theology, but it's, it's specifically to answer this kind of modern question. And that's uh, maybe and that, worth, that can get uh, lost here. Yeah, that's maybe worth pausing on just for a second, right? Because what I don't think we mentioned last time is that uh, this essay was for a, a kind of a festschrift for Skilabeks. Yeah, that's um, right. And we did comment last time, though, on, on that it, the, the sort of um, point of origin for the, the essay is an engagement with Rahner. Um, and I, I think it, th- why, why it's worth pausing on is there's a certain reception of Lonergan that sort of classes him with the transcendental Thomists, um, despite his protests but that more broadly sort of fits Lonergan within this kind of revisionist Thomist um, account or project where you know, the accusation goes, there's a, there's a subordination of the discussion to Cartesian subjectivity, to Kantian critical philosophy, to Heideggerian fundamental ontology. I mean, you know, pick your, pick your baddie. Um, and I think it's, this essay is, is covertly, and somewhat subtly, um, though nonetheless, if, if you see what's going on somewhat directly, um, distinguishing itself uh, from that project, and, and so also evidence that maybe the narrative that fits Lonergan into that, uh, that history is flawed in, in some important ways, right? Because, you know, what we don't have here is a project akin to, you know, um, the runner of spirit in the world where you're showing that Thomist analysis can hang within the horizon set out by broadly neo-Kantian questions. Um, rather what you have is uh, to continue with that analogy and to speak more broadly of Lonergan, right? you have these kind of modern concerns, maybe a sort of broadly neo-Kantian or Heideggerian um, set of uh, worries and critiques hovering in the background all the time. Uh, and, and Lonergan takes the questions of what is Christology um, within an evolutionary worldview and sets out, admittedly, transposing and modifying Thomas's position, but really sets up Thomas's position not as um, measured against the criteria of the, the, the sort of modern answers, or a Kantian set of answers, or Heideggerian set of answers, it really sets them out as self-standing alternatives. Um, and that's a rather different, that's a rather different project than, the, say, the, the Rahner of spirit in the world, um, which is not necessarily to denigrate. I know there are people who, would, who, who want to attack Rahner for that sort of uh, quote-unquote capitulation or something. I think that's pretty unfair. But, um, but nonetheless, I think that the difference needs to be underlined. Um, that the the projects are not uh, easily collapsed into one another uh, or fit under a single historical heading. Um, I don't know. That's maybe enough to say on that, but it's it's worth it's worth pointing out. Yeah. No, I agree. 
it's also i think and this 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 would be true i think especially for Rahner as well is that the the theology that they were trained in gave them an uh, an ease of use with regard to uh, especially aquinas um that those of us who've been trained in in the you know 50 years since the council um just don't have right uh, and so we have to go back and kind of learn just in order to, to understand uh, what, what Lonergan or what Rahner or what some of these other figures are, are actually doing when they bring Aquinas to bear on uh, the, the sort of modern scene. And one of the things that I think we have lost um, is, a, is a real understanding of Thomistic Trinitarian theology. And there's, a, of course, a thousand reasons for this, and we don't need to get into Berenian and and all of the 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 stories that get told about uh, Trinitarian theology since the late nineteenth century, but suffice to say that that um, I think it's it's fair to assume that your average um, modern theologian does not have an overly sophisticated account of Thomas Trinitarian theology, and so when Lonergan uses the term mission here, it may not be self evident what he's talking about. And so I think before we we get into the account of the mission of the word and the mission of the spirit, we should probably uh, pause and do what Lonergan doesn't do in this essay and say what a mission is. So Ryan, uh, <laughs> what's a mission? So if we're talking about missions, right, we're talking really about, uh, in the first case, about the data of revelation on the Trinity. Um, we're talking about what it means when Christ says, you know, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Uh, this language emerges over and over again in the New Testament where we, we get um, this relationship of sender and sent. That, that God, that the Father, Hothaos, is the one who sends the Son. And the Son is the one who is sent from the Father. But the Son we, we see is sort of also a sender, right? He promises to send the Spirit to his disciples, a helper, a paraclete, right? And in the development of Trinitarian theology, these are kind of primary data points uh, within scriptural revelation that have to be considered in order to work out any kind of systematic theory of divine life. And so in much of the patristic tradition, this is what comes first, right? If you read uh, Augustine's De Trinitate, these are the kind of, um, kinds of things that, that he begins his account of the Trinity with. He's starting with what are the missions? What are the what, what does history and revelation tell us about how God has made himself known as Trinity in the world? But in the medieval tradition, and especially in Aquinas, you have a very different method because you have a very different context of writing. So, for instance, in the Summa Theologiae, what Aquinas is trying to do um, is not just sort of begin with the consideration of the meaning of divine revelation, but consider what it would mean to teach the Trinity, to teach uh, an account of divinity to 
students, right? And so the whole order of presentation is inverted from the Augustinian procedure. So rather than beginning with missions, Aquinas begins with processions. And so the first question about the Trinity that he asks is, is there procession in God? And so, of course, Aquinas will answer yes, in no small part, because, you know, the Bible told him so. Uh, And then he will consider the relations. And the relations are the processions where you understand those processions in terms of mutual opposition of terms. So you have a relation of the father to the son, the relation of the son to the father, the relation of the father and the son to the spirit, and the relation of the spirit to the father and son. So two processions gives you four real relations. Three of those relations, it turns out, are really distinct and also subsistent, and so can reasonably be called persons. And so two processions gives you an account of four relations, gives you an account of three persons. But then Aquinas comes back to the missions because he has to consider the respect in which those persons have communicated themselves to history, to the world, to creation. Uh, And so he considers the missions as the person of the father who sends the son uh, and the persons of the Father and Son as they send the Spirit. But what is a mission then, uh, sort of substantially, constitutively? It's a procession, right? What a mission is, is a procession. What makes it a mission then, what makes it not just a tautology to say that a procession is a mission, is that a mission also has a consequent condition. It has something else that's true beyond the procession. And that other thing that's true is contingent, is created, is not necessary. And so uh, a mission is the procession as the sort of integral and constitutive condition, and then some other contingent term as a consequent condition. Uh, and so the, that kind of order of procedure within Aquinas's Trinitarian theology gives you the mission at the end, where mission is, again, is the procession with a contingent consequent term. Now, in this, this essay, Lonergan is considering uh, the visible mission of the word or the son and the invisible mission of the spirit. And he's relating those two missions to everything that he's just been talking about, both in terms of the kind of autonomous process of um, and, and the dynamism of human consciousness and intentionality, um, but also the like concrete community founding experience of being uh, in history. Um, and so, we can, we can work through these things uh, point by point here, John, but, but I think it's just important to sort of lay down from the outset that uh, sort of what Lonergan means when he's using the term mission here. No, I th- that's really helpful. Um, and I, you know, I, I hope our, uh, our listeners <clears throat> were, were able to take notes because uh, that, that was a, a fine summary of, of Thomas on the point. Um, 
So then let's, let's turn back to what we were just discussing, right? Um, let's turn back to the sort of two elements of the anthropology given, right? You have the vertical, vertical finality of conscious human living that uh, is this autonomous process of um, attentiveness and intelligence and reasonableness and responsibility. Um, and then the, the sort of parallel track that's undergirding and suffusing and all those kinds of things of affectivity, intersubjectivity unto free and loving interpersonality. Um, and, you know, Lonergan gives an account of the way in which uh, affectivity and intersubjectivity give rise to communities of love. But the autonomous process of, of cognitional and practical consciousness uh, is also giving rise to things, right? It's, it's solving problems, it's answering questions, it's coming up with solutions to practical concerns, it's building um, technology, it's building an economy, it's building a, a kind of polity in the sense of a, a structure for, for communal decision-making. Um, and there's being generated all these kinds of uh, meanings and values that communicate, get communicated by a tradition through time. And so part of what, what Lonergan then does when he turns to the missions is he looks at, in a way, it's a kind of traditional uh, conveniencia, a kind of fittingness argument, that he's going to say that the visible mission of the word is in its objectivity something that fits into, that, that, that can uh, become the object of, but also become the sort of, um, the object of in multiple senses, right? It can be in the object of in sense of something acted upon, but it can also be the object of in something that acts upon that meaning-mediated, cognitional, and practical conscious process. Um, and conversely, you have the mission of the spirit, which is still a, a sending, still a communication of uh, a divine person into history. Um, but the fittingness here is to the, uh, the relative immediacy of the intersubjective, of the affective, of the embodied, um, and also of the, the free self-donation of interpersonal love within a community. Um, and so in, in part, what you have is the prior analysis of these two elements of the human subject, providing a heuristic for where, as, as Ryan said, right, the, the data of God's work in history uh, coalesce, where, where to be attentive, where to focus one's questions, um, where the evidence will be found for theological judgments, um, where, uh, where to attend as we consider the feasibility of our social and cultural and ecclesial projects. Um, and in a way, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of remarkable, right? That, that he's able to, in, in so few pages, um, give us a kind of uh, incipient uh, Theology as Wissenschaft, right? I mean, right. Um, which is uh, uh, an idea that's or an ideal that's in some disrepute, I think. Um, 
but not but, Naturwissenschaft, of course. <laughs> well, indeed, indeed. Um, but a but a you know a, a Shantia. Yeah, and um, so so that you're able to say like, look, uh, the whole the whole of the human subject is encountered by the God who enters history both as the person of Jesus, the, the person of the son incarnate in Jesus Christ, and also in the Holy spirit sent, um, sent to us and that indwells our hearts, but also constitutes our, uh, our church, but also our, our other communities of love through, um, through God's redemptive love poured out into our hearts. I mean, it might be worth by way of conclusion to simply uh, read a passage. You got one in mind? Yeah, I do. Um, so, so in this last section, of course, Lonergan's talking, talked about redemption um, as, as the kind of gift of what in traditional language we would call the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love as kind of new principles of order and operation in the dynamism of human subjectivity. And then he's talked about um, the communication of, of God through the mission of the word that um, expresses itself in faith. And he's talked about uh, the invisible mission of the spirit that uh, is, is an indwelling, right? And so it's not, it's not uh, the faith that comes by hearing, but the faith that comes by uh, having God's love poured out into our hearts through the spirit. So he says, these three are cumulative. Revulsion from the objective reign of sin and from the subject's own moral impotence heightens vertical finality. Without the mission of the word, the gift of the spirit is a being in love without a proper object. It remains simply an orientation to mystery that awaits its interpretation. Without the invisible mission of the spirit, the word enters into, uh, into his own and his own do not receive him. Such Christian origins are exemplary. As the Father sent the Son, so the Son sent the disciples on a mission to continue to the end of time. As the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to the disciples, so they continue to bestow the Spirit on the ever oncoming members of Christ. So the self communication of the Son and Spirit proceeds through history by a communication that is at once cognitive, constitutive, and redemptive. It is cognitive, for it discloses in whom we are to believe. It is constitutive, for it crystallizes the inner gift of the love of God into overt Christian fellowship. It is redemptive, for it liberates human liberty from thraldom to sin, and it guides those it liberates to the kingdom of the Father. Experience of grace, then, is as large as the Christian experience of life. Well, there you go. Hey, look at that, guys. We, uh, we did some theology. We kept promising long- and threatening that it would happen. It's been a long time coming, but we did some honest-to-goodness theology on this podcast. Um, well, thanks, thanks for hanging with us uh, through a, two, a two-parter on Mission and Spirit. I hope it was rich. Uh, if you haven't had a chance yet, you can go find it. It's in a third collection, and it's very good, and it's very dense. Lonergan had a habit of, as I'm sure you've discovered over the last few weeks, uh, writing these sort of uh, neutron star essays 
that are just cram packed full of good stuff. If you, if you know how to, how to, how to unpack them. Um, all right. I think that's it for us. Uh, we will be back next week with a guest as promised for now. Go check out our Patreon. If you get a chance, patreon.com slash systematically. If you want to ask us a question or make a comment or contribute treasures old and new, you can send us an email at uh, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. You can get us on Twitter at systematicpod. And uh, we're always happy to get comments and questions and likes and retweets and this, uh, this, that sort of stuff. Our music, as always, intro and outro is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Big thank you to Brian Baycheck, who we miss very much. Thank you for doing our show editing and putting together show notes and all that kind of stuff. And finally, I guess only fittingly, be in love with each other and with God. Adios. Adios.